Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 3. I invite you to turn there. We have met here this morning, as we've already been reminded, to celebrate the most stupendous event that ever took place on planet Earth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And while we don't understand all the power or the implications behind that, we can understand the effects of that in our personal lives. In our reading this morning from Acts chapter 3, we'll notice another incident where Peter raised the lame man to new life, to health and vigor through the power of the resurrected Christ. And then at the close of the reading, I'll be reading chapter 3 and into chapter 4 through verse 12. We notice there in verse 12 where Peter gives the formula for salvation. There is salvation in no other than this resurrected Lord Jesus Christ whom we celebrate today. Acts 3, 1 through 4, 12. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. 
And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> 37, Matthew chapter 27, I don't think there is a 37, we'll be reading today for our text Matthew 27 verses 57 into chapter 28 verse 10. The text today tells the story of Jesus, a particular part of his story, 
And it introduces the, the method, the means, the way by which God, through his son Jesus, is going to reconcile all things back to himself. And in this particular story, there are three parties, three interested parties that are watching, that are paying attention. These three parties, the first is implicit in the story, but not explicit in this particular story, though it is explicit in Scripture. And we'll simply refer to it as the Apostle Paul does in Colossians. He calls them the rulers and authorities. And this is simply acknowledging that there is a spiritual realm that we often do not see with our physical eyes. That there is a cosmic conflict that's taking place that we often forget between God and his hosts and Satan and his hosts who have rebelled against God. This cosmic conflict is part of the narrative of what's taking place here. The second interested party is addressed very explicitly here in this passage. And Matthew simply refers to them as the chief priests and Pharisees. And he kind of lumps them together into one basic group of people. And the chief priests and their Pharisees have a guard given to them by Pilate, a Roman uh, armed guard. And we see them active in the story. They're interested in what's going to happen. And the third interested party uh, is referenced by Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. So two Marys. Mary Magdalene represents, and the other Mary represent people whose lives have been deeply touched by Jesus. People whose hopes and dreams were hanging on Jesus for themselves and their families. Mary Magdalene, who had been delivered from the demonic powers that had destroyed her life. The other Mary, sons who were aligned with the mission of Jesus and sons that she hoped would be a part of his rule in Jerusalem. The chief priests and Pharisees are representing a group of people whose ideology, whose institutions, and whose personal positions were threatened by the message and mission of Jesus. Both their political and their religious ideologies. The rulers and authorities are those powers who were in open rebellion against God, who were active in bringing the human race into an active rebellion against God, and have tried every, in every way to denigrate God and to destroy his reconciling ministry in the world through Jesus. We're going to note this story in two particular scenes. First of all, Jesus in the tomb. And second, the second half of the story, Jesus resurrected. Then we're going to look at the implications for us since Christ has been risen. Let's read Matthew chapter 27. Begin reading in verse 57. And I'd like to just back up one verse since we're going to reference this a bit later. And I want you to note, Jesus has been buried, I'm sorry, at the crucifixion. 
Verse 56, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, are standing watching the events of the crucifixion from a distance. And then in verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. See, they're there, there again. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have here a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Father, this story is most remarkable. But your son Jesus is infinitely more remarkable. Open our eyes to see, to savor, and then lead us to serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, the two scenes, Jesus buried, Jesus resurrected. Three interested parties, the rulers and authorities, chief priests and Pharisees, and in a cluster, the disciples. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and by extension, other disciples of Jesus. In the opening part of this story that we just read, Jesus is in the tomb. Jesus is dead. He's wrapped up in cloth. 
He's been interred in a stone cave, a hole in the rock. And if you go into most of those old caves of the time, they're literally a cave carved into the rock with shelves along the side. And dead bodies would be placed on those shelves, left there to decompose. And once the bodies had completely decomposed, the bones would then be taken back to the end of the chamber and put in a big box where generations of bones could be collected and the tomb could be used over and over. And it was most people's fate to be buried on a shelf that had been used before. And they might have been number two or number 10 or number 50. This was a newly carved, newly hewn tomb that Jesus was placed in. But he was dead. He was dead. And the rulers and authorities, we don't know much what they're thinking. Scripture doesn't give us a lot of clues. There's a songwriter who says, the devil danced with glee. And I think he was using some pretty active imagination there likely. I think the devil already had a clue he was in trouble because of the resurrection of Lazarus, because of what took place when Jesus was crucified. Uh, just a bit earlier in this passage, this most mysterious uh, series of events, that when the veil of the temple was torn as Jesus was dying, from the top to the bottom, the earth shook, the rocks split. It says the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and came out of the tombs after his resurrection, went into the holy city, into Jerusalem, and appeared to many. Uh, what, all, what that was all about, I don't know, I, and I've often wondered. And people keep asking the question, so what happened next? Um, did they just go home again? Did Grandpa just show up at dinner and say, hey, hi, I'm back, let's have lunch, and then die five years later? Um, you know, it doesn't say. But this had to be a most remarkable most remarkable series of events. And you can be absolutely assured that Satan, who really did want to see the purposes of God thwarted, he, he notes all this stuff. And he's saying, while it may appear that we have triumphed, by putting the Son of God in a tomb, something's going on. And we're nervous. Again, we don't know. The second party we know a little bit more about in this passage and in some others. These were the chief priests and Pharisees. These were the people who had conspired to kill Jesus now for quite some time. And there were multiple reasons why they wanted Jesus dead. They hated Jesus for his message, his message that drew crowds of people, that challenged their position and their power. He, they hated Jesus for his confronting them. Matthew 23, Jesus told them they're placing heavy burdens on people, heavy burdens of expectation on people. They're closing up the kingdom of God to people who are coming. They're shutting it up in people's faces. They're misrepresenting God. They're, they were charged with blatant hypocrisy, giving extraordinary attention to the minutia of the law, but neglecting the weightier matters of mercy and faithfulness. Jesus had scathing words for these people, and they hated him for it. 
They hated Jesus for his ministry, along with his messianic claims. And the people's messianic accolades. They had welcomed this man, Jesus, coming into Jerusalem only a week before, waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. The people were saying, Jesus is Messiah. And the scribes, Pharisees, high priests were terrified and angry. And it may be important for us to consider why that would make them so angry. And I don't claim to understand all of it, but there clearly was a political as well as a religious connotation to this fear. The political one was the chief priests who were ruling in the temple had worked hard to carve out a place for them to worship in Jerusalem, had worked hard to protect their turf so that they could be in charge, they could celebrate their festivals, they could worship God in the ways that they had chosen the way they believed God wanted them to worship. They had worked hard to gain the permission from this Roman Empire who was all around them and all over top of them. They protected their religious worship, and they had used some ingenious political maneuvers to get this established. And now here comes another Messiah. Brother Chris this morning referenced uh, the Maccabean Revolution, and every time some rebel rose up against Rome, tried to free Israel, Rome would simply crush the rebellion. And people ended up on crosses many times before, on the Roman cross. Many who had tried to liberate Israel had been crushed under Roman rule. And they did not want their fragile peace disrupted. And that peace was both political and religious. And so when Jesus comes along and he's gathering crowds and thousands of people are listening to his teaching, thousands of people are following him into the wilderness, into the desert, eating bread that he's serving, they're concerned about the political stability of Israel. The message of Jesus, his messianic claims, and the people's messianic accolades were threatening the, the very fragile peace that was in place. What they actually say is there is a first fraud. This was the fraud of his life, which I think was basically the claim to be Messiah. And so they reference that as the first fraud and the second fraud they were afraid would actually be greater and have more severe implications. And that would be that if, in fact, the disciples took his body out of the tomb and said, oh, this Jesus, he's risen from the dead. If that happened, they said the implications of that is even worse because in that way, the Messiah would have been validated as the Son of God if, in fact, he had risen from the dead. So this was going to be a major problem. If having gotten rid of this Jesus once for the sake of peace in the temple and in the city, now the message got out that this, this fellow is actually alive. He's been resurrected. So the response from them is to try to maintain this religious and political stability with or protect it from his deception. He's dead, he's buried, and in their minds, he is right where he belongs. But 
niggling in the back of their minds is the recollection that he said he's going to rise after three days. And I find it most ironic that his enemies remembered this. His disciples didn't seem to remember it. Very interesting. But he had made that claim. And their theory was the disciples would go in and steal the body and then make the claim. And one wonders if they had actually been observing the disciples' conduct the previous three days. As you read the story, these disciples were no one one to be frightened of. They were cowards. They were terrified. They were hiding. And most likely, they were afraid of being next on the list for the cross themselves. Because the one they had been following, the one in whom their messianic hope was was rooted, he had been crucified. And it wasn't uncommon for his close followers to be nailed to the cross on the heels of that messianic death. And so, what's their solution? Chief priests and say we've, say, we've got to make this tomb secure. Now, I want you just, just to ponder this for a moment. You're going to secure a cave to keep a dead body in the cave. This is not one of Pharaoh's tombs that has millions of dollars worth of treasure and gold where they're trying to secure it from grave robbers that are trying to get the wealth of the guy who's buried there that he's taking with him to the afterlife. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a corpse. There's a corpse in the tomb, and we're going to secure the tomb against the dead corpse. And Pilate's words have just a ring of irony. Go ahead, here's a guard. Make it as secure as you can. The charge is resurrection. The fear is stolen body and claim of resurrection. And how long, just think, how long could you defend the charge of resurrection by stealing a dead body? It's a pretty short runway. It's a pretty short runway. He never shows up. He's disappeared, resurrected. He's alive, when in fact people have been seeing formerly dead people walking around city streets. But this guy never shows up. So they really are concerned about fraud. We'll discover that they're the masters of fraud themselves. Go make it secure, Pilate says, as secure as you can. And then there's the third interested party, Mary Magdalene, who's been delivered from the bondage of evil, who's been restored, in a sense, to a new human existence with the touch of Jesus, a former social outcast now having found a place of healing, hope, and belonging to a group of disciples, a people. And the other Mary, the mother of two disciples, excited about the future Jesus promised her through her sons as she saw her sons flourish, the hope of deliverance through this rabbi who was most certainly the Messiah. We don't know what all our motivations were. We know that some of them were selfish. You see their 
would seem to be some perks if, in fact, your son was in the White House. And we know that she had some ideas of that. Nevertheless, her hopes and aspirations were in this man, Jesus. They, unlike the supposed rebel grave robbers who were actually cowards, they were at the crucifixion looking on from a distance. They were at the tomb sitting opposite, observing his burial, weeping at the grave. They were also there that Sunday morning to again grieve his death and honor his memory. Sorrow overwhelmed them. Their hope was gone. Memories were lingering of a short season, thinking things were going to be different now. That there was hope for them. There was hope for the common Galilean. In spite of the suffering under the rule of Rome and the tyranny of religious expectations, they were confronted by evil within and evil without. There was this hope now and longing for redemption. Whatever that was. And what's their response to Jesus in the tomb? They're on the sidelines, they're watching, they're waiting. Some of the disciples are afraid and have retreated. They're not remembering Jesus' promise of resurrection. The second scene of the story, Jesus is raised from the dead. He's resurrected. He's come back to life. We read almost nothing about the actual resurrection. We just hear it announced that he's resurrected. The angel arrives, rolls the stone away. People are terrified. Even the guards, the tough Roman royal guards, are terrified and fall down like dead men. They're stunned. Let's look at the three postures, the three responses to this resurrection. The rulers and authorities, again, we don't know a lot about them. What we do know is that Paul says in Colossians that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. The resurrection of Jesus triumphed finally, fully, over the rulers and authorities that had sought to destroy him. Death was defeated. Evil and the evil one defeated. The powerful accuser openly shamed. The watershed battle is over. And we know that the rulers and authorities will ultimately bow the knee to Jesus in complete and shameful, humiliating defeat. The second party, the chief priests and Pharisees, the ones who had been living lives of deception, had layered lie upon lie to protect themselves, now are actually breaking the law of God. They've paid off witnesses. And there's this, this remarkable story here at the end of our passage. The guards come back to the chief priests who had put them in place to seal off that tomb to be sure no one stole the body. The guards, they come back to the chief priests and say, hey, tomb's empty. We're in trouble. We failed to fulfill the task assigned to us. We lost this one. Have mercy on us. And the chief priests, more committed 
to their lies and deception than to truth. This is what they said. They said, listen, we'll give you a lot of money, and you just tell the story that while we were sleeping, the disciples came. These timid, cowardly men came and stole the body out of a sealed tomb. Incredible tale. And Matthew goes on to say that at the time of the writing of his gospel, and possibly 20, possibly 30, 40 years later, that story that the disciples came while the Roman guards were sleeping, which that's not what you do when you're on guard, the disciples came, stole the body of Jesus, and are now going around telling people he's been resurrected from the dead. Lie upon lie upon lie. Working first to secure a dead body, and now working to silence the truth that Jesus, the Son of God, has risen from the dead. And then there's the disciples, represented first by Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They had experienced the touch of Jesus. They had listened to his teachings. Hope had been stirred in their souls. And now they see this Jesus. They encounter this Jesus. They're afraid, but they're also amazed. They don't understand what's really going on. And fear grips their hearts, but joy is surrounding it. I, I can't help but imagine it's a little like what some people feel when they get married. And I would suggest rightfully so. Absolutely terrified and terribly excited at the same time. Right to be terrified. Right to be excited. But you're not sure which should win. And so, you know, the stories, some, for some, fear wins out and the guy runs to the cornfield. You know, not many of those stories, but they do occur. Fear, amazement, joy, but mystery. What in the world is going on? The acknowledgement, the tomb is empty. And, and not only is it empty, we read in the other Gospels that linen cloths are folded and lying right where the body of Jesus had been placed. The napkin that was over his face, laying there carefully placed in the tomb. Sound like something a ragtag lot of disciples might do while they're snitching his body and running away quickly before they get caught? No, it seems like a pretty orderly, timely, thoughtful process. Deliberate. They're amazed. They're trying to make sense out of this. And as they turn to walk away, they hear greetings. The old version, all hail. Mary, my name. And they recognize the Jesus, whom they knew was dead, whom they had been told was now alive. 
And they have the correct response to the reality that Jesus is resurrected. They come to this Jesus, they bow the knee, they take hold of his feet, and they worship him. What does Jesus do? Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. He provides comfort. He also tells them, now go and tell the message to the other disciples. He commissions them. He not only comforts them, but he also commissions them. What all is going on here? Well, much more than we'll ever be able to address. But the implications of the resurrection of Jesus are, for us here today, everything that has ever held you in bondage, sin, self, and Satan. The grip of that slavery has been broken. What held you in a death grip, that grip has been released. The possibility of your eternal freedom is in front of you. And we are assured that all creation is going to bow the knee to this risen Christ. Even the rulers and authorities, they will bow the knee. All who are still in denial and rebellion will bow the knee to this Jesus. The disciples of Jesus are now voluntarily bowing the knee. So the rightful posture for all humanity, all creation, before this risen Christ is to bow the knee and to worship. The rightful response upon the commission of Christ is to obey what Christ has told us to do. So what were they actually sealing up in the tomb? It wasn't just a dead body. It was also the guilt of the entire human race. It was the shame, the sense of failure and worthlessness that humanity has experienced. The tendency to run and hide, that was all sealed up in the tomb. The suffering of the human race, the human race that faced the cruelty of life, surrounded by sin, surrounded by sinners, it was all locked up in the tomb. The sorrow, the crushing weight of sorrow that humanity experiences in a world gone so badly wrong, all locked up in the tomb. And the devil is saying, lock it up, lock it up, seal it, make it as secure as you can for all eternity. Leave humanity doomed to eternal death. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, more concerned with a facade of righteousness than with mercy and faithfulness, are saying, lock him up. Make him as secure as you can. This world wrapped in darkness, bound in the chains of sin, crushed under the burden of guilt, cowering in the shadows of shame, lock this man up. Lock this body up in the tomb. Seal it up. Make it as secure as you can. The one who was full of grace and truth the one who had offered hope, the one who had offered forgiveness, the one who gave bread to the nations, the one who was, in fact, the new wine being poured out into old wineskins that would eventually rupture. The water of life, he was in the tomb, gone, dead, sealed in a tomb, and with it, the hope of all creation. And Mary Magdalene is wondering if the freedom that she had found in Jesus was really too good to last. Lazarus is wondering if the new resurrection life that had been given to him is now going to be lost forever. The Samaritan woman who felt the surge of hope and the promise of eternal waters of life. She's wondering, has that fountain now dried up? 
But the message of Matthew 28 is, now is Christ risen. And that changes that entire story. Not only does it change the story, it changes the entire course of history for the whole world, for all of eternity. And that resurrection has implications for all of us here today. It's our tendency to feel the grip of sin, to feel the weight of guilt and shame, and to say, it's ours forever. We must carry it forever. The resurrection says, no, the chains are broken. You can be set free. Consider with me just a few of these implications. In our world, in the course of our existence, even for us as disciples of Jesus, it's so easy for our faith to get shifted from resting securely in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to find some sort of mooring in other lesser things. And when our church, our family, our nation, our marriage, our business, our checkbooks face the rumblings of uncertainty, when there is an open question about what does faithfulness to God really look like, it very quickly exposes where our confidence lies. Is our confidence in the church or is our confidence in Christ? Is our confidence in our financial security or is our confidence in Christ? Is our confidence in a healthy marriage and a strong family or is our confidence in Christ? Is our confidence in a healthy economy in our nation or is our confidence in Christ? Is our confidence in a calm military context, a peaceful environment around the world, or is our confidence in Christ? Is our confidence in a president that we admire and respect, or is our confidence in Christ? Is our confidence in a denomination, or a particular tradition, or particular sets of forms, doctrines, and practices, or is our confidence in Christ? Is our confidence in our ability to understand what's going on? Or is our confidence in Christ? Is our confidence in our ability to be sure that we've got it all right? Or is our confidence in Christ? There's no better way to test our rest in the resurrected Christ than to have some of these lesser things shaken. To have them tested. And to see, to discover whether in fact our confidence is in Christ or in something else. If evil has a strong hold on your life and you care more about living according to the flesh the desires of the flesh, then about according to Christ, 
The message of the resurrection here today confronts you in two ways. It confronts you right now by saying, nothing holds you hostage to your sin. When the power of the resurrection is here for all those who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. Nothing. No addiction. No history. No overwhelming sense of shame. Nothing in your past has the power to hold you hostage when we have a Jesus who has been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus confronts you with that message today. Secondarily, the message of the resurrection of Jesus says, you too will be resurrected even though you die. In your body, you will die. You will see corruption. You're going to be buried. You're going to, go, you're going to be dead. But because of the resurrection, you're not going to stay dead. You're going to rise again, and you will encounter the resurrected Jesus. And when you encounter the resurrected Jesus on that side of your death, it will be as a judge. He, because of his resurrection, and because of your assured resurrection from the dead, you will encounter him then, and scripture makes it very clear that you will bow the knee to this resurrected Jesus. Because all creation will be brought under his feet. And you can acknowledge him today as the resurrected Messiah. And so dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. You can deny him today as the resurrected Messiah. Face him as the judge and forcibly bow the knee. Maybe you have encountered the hopeful words of Jesus, the healing touch of Jesus, a drink from the waters of life, but you find yourself tired, weary, wondering if you'll be able to persevere and be faithful in a world filled with pain, evil, and suffering. The message of the gospel, the story of Easter, the message of resurrection says, Jesus took all this on himself, and you don't have to carry it by yourself. Jesus shares it with you, and it's okay to die with Jesus. Because when you die with Jesus, when you die in Christ, you will also be raised with him. While resurrection is not about making life safe and secure, it is about making dead bones live. It is about bringing the eternal life of heaven into a dead and dying world. It is about sweeping through the enemy lines of a deeply embedded enemy force, pouring new wine into old wineskins, opening up fountains of living water into the arid deserts of hardened hearts. This is the message of Jesus and his resurrection. And it finally comes down to this. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, Christianity is a fraud and a joke. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, that Christianity is the fullness of God's revelation, and Jesus must be the absolute center of your life. 
There is no third option. Are you surrendered to this Jesus today? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we pause in prayer, coming to you through your resurrected Son, Jesus, who lives to intercede for us forever. Lord, your Spirit is working and moving here today in people's hearts, bringing comfort, offering hope, bringing rest, and also bringing to bear the weight of human guilt and shame. In the silence of these moments, would you draw hearts to yourself? That those who rebel against you might acknowledge you as Lord, be invited into the sonship, would know that the joy of forgiveness, the courage brought by justification, the hope bought, brought through a new birth. And Lord, may your son Jesus be lifted up, exalted, and worshiped. We pray this in his name.